But let's talk about the elephant in the room when we're talking about CEOs, right? Which is Elon. You know, you can't help but think that wonder if Twitter is just a huge mistake. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. You know, I created Wealthion to give you, the regular investor, access to what the experts in the investing world are thinking. And in our short lifespan, I think we've done a pretty good job so far in having an impressive number of revealing conversations with many of the best minds in money in the markets. But I'm extremely excited to talk with today's guest expert, Andy Serwer, who does what I do, but on an even grander scale. Andy's the editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance, and he spends his days interviewing the giants of industry, Wall Street, and Capitol Hill. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Nice to see you, Adam. <laughs> it's a total pleasure. Andy, you and I were talking a little bit before we turned the camera on here. Uh, you are the editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance. Um, that's actually where I started my Silicon Valley career. Um, I've been on Wall Street for a little bit, went and got my MBA, and then the whole internet revolution happened. And then I found myself at Yahoo Finance as the head of marketing for it. So um, we've got a lot in common. I've, I've got a lot of old, probably very boring stories <laughs> that maybe I can tell you over a drink at some point if we meet up in person. Uh, but it's wonderful to see what you've been doing uh, with that platform. And as I said, you are talking to the, the true apex players uh, in terms of you know, the folks actually driving the economy, the decision makers, the heads of the investing world. Um, I'm really excited to pick your brain because um, you are an expert of experts is sort of the way that I look at you, Andy. Um, I got a lot of questions here for you, but just, just as a jumping off point here, um, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets, especially based on what you learned from all the folks that you talked to? Yeah, um, big question, Adam. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you. A um, lot of questions out there. You know, it always seems like there are, even if you look back on a time period that's really quiescent or where the markets are performing so well for investors. Right now, it's it's really a tricky time. I mean, you look at what's going on, obviously, in Europe with Ukraine and how that's influencing the energy markets and the food markets. You look at what's going on in China and its problems of coming out of COVID and the, the exercise of free speech that we're seeing there right now and the implication on the US equity markets, stocks like Apple feeling those effects. Um, but I think the biggest issue right now, of course, is rates um, and the rate cycle and the Federal Reserve and fighting inflation. And you know the fight against inflation um, you know, we've been having this debate for months and years now about whether this blip up in inflation is temporal or not. We seem to have, you know, dissuaded ourselves the notion that it was very temporary. Now is it a bit temporary? And, you know, the causes of inflation, we've hashed that out a lot, have to do with COVID and, of course, the war in Ukraine, as well as anti-globalism. So it's tricky stuff. The Fed is fighting it by raising rates. And, you know, the last time we saw a big rate cycle up was in the 1970s, Adam. And most people don't remember what that was like, but I sure do. I was young and early in my career, but I remember the most exciting thing at the end of the rate cycle, people got so sick of equities. They didn't go up. Stocks never went up anymore. People were just excited about CDs that were yielding 16%. And yep. I tell young people about this. They have no idea what I'm talking about. 
Now, let's hope the Federal Reserve does a better job of fighting inflation today than they did back then so that this rate cycle is not protracted and we can get back to the races. But, you know, we have this little move up in the markets right now over the past couple of weeks in September and people say, OK, the all clear signal is out. I'm not sure if that's the case. <laughs> OK, yeah, we, we've had. uh you know, some of our veteran guests here that, um, you know, have been investing uh, for decades and remember what it was like back in the 70s, like you're saying there, Andy. And uh, so they've lived through a couple of, of bad bear market cycles that today's younger investors haven't. And, you know, many of them said, you know, the way to tell when a bear market is over is when nobody wants to touch stocks, right? Um, you've had the capitulation, uh, everybody's so battered and bruised, they literally don't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole. And like you said, they just want safe, boring, you know, anything that's just not losing money. And a CD, great. That sounds awesome, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, famously, you get, you know, magazine covers, right, which are the yeah. you know, signposts. And there was a very famous magazine cover in 1980 saying the death of equities, that stocks would never work again. And, you know, talk about like a raging, you know, buy signal. Of course, at that point, you know, people didn't want to buy, though, because they were so burned. I mean, that was, you know, this basically a bear market that was 16 years um, going back to the late 1960s. The market went up, the market went down point to point. It went absolutely nowhere. Um, we definitely have not had the capitulation yet. Now, that doesn't mean that the market can't go up from here and that the inflation fight is over. I really don't know. No one does for sure. But, you know, we've been buying on the dips for a long time. And in a way, that really includes 2008, 2009 as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was a pretty severe but very short, you know, bear market, relatively speaking. And of course, 2000, um, 2020 was a very short bear market as well. The COVID bear market, the one month bear market. Yeah, blink and you'll miss it, bear market. Yeah, exactly. yeah so we're, we're used to these little snapbacks and you know, at some point, there won't be a, a snapback kind of bear market. Well, let, let me ask you about that. So, um, you know, I think a lot of folks would argue that the reason why those bear markets were not super protracted was because we had unprecedented intervention uh, by the central banks, right? And um, some might say, hey, that's what you got to do, right, in a crisis, Um I think a lot of folks would say, well, maybe, um, but certainly in the periods uh, between those two <laughs> crises, 08 and 2020, there was a lot of continued intervention in a way where, where people would say, look, that was unnecessary. And what it ended up doing was creating this massive uh, asset bubble in, well, in, in everything, right? A lot of people call that that the everything bubble. We had the housing bubble before that, we had the dot-com bubble before that, but but. 2009 to 2020 was sort of the everything bubble, or some might even say to 2022. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just curious because you operate in the mainstream media. And I, I, I did not mention in the intro that before you became editor in chief of Yahoo Finance, you had a very long career at Fortune. Um, so you have been in the financial media space uh, since the mid 80s, I believe. So almost 40 years. Um, and, you know, you, you tend to, well, let me put it this way. There is a criticism of the mainstream financial media that it has not been as critical of the Fed and the other central banks as you know maybe some people would like them to be. So I'm just curious, um, how, how much responsibility um, do you lay at the feet of central banks like the Fed 
for perhaps creating an environment that we are now sort of dealing with the reckoning of that the, the, the intervention kept kicking the can down the road and perhaps we're at a point where that can can't really be kicked any further yeah i mean that's sort of two questions adam which is one yeah. what do i think about the fed policy and two how do journalists cover it um and we'll i'll answer both of those another side issue of course as well um particularly over the past couple of years is not only monetary policy but fiscal policy Yes, I mean, you know, so it, it's been both, of course, you know, with a massive stimulus um, that we had in 2008, 2009, which was dwarfed by what we had during the COVID era. And I think everyone would acknowledge that that put too much money in the hands of consumers, maybe certainly a, a lot of money. Um, the debate whether it was too much is the same debate as the stimulus debate that you asked me about when it comes to Fed policy. Yeah. Um, I think you're right about that. You know, I, it's 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 funny because a lot of the criticism of the Federal Reserve, and this is kind of addressing both the Federal Reserve question and the media question, because a lot of times the criticism of the Federal Reserve comes from, let's face it, kind of like off the grid wacko people. Like I'm against the Fed. Everything the Fed does is wrong. In fact, we should abolish the Fed. And so when you hear people, when journalists hear people criticizing the Fed, there's kind of an inclination, I think, and then people might not want to admit this, that those are the wackos, that the Fed, are, you know, these people are like super smart. They really care. They have all this data. They really know what they're doing. And I think that that bias has not served journalists terribly well, because, I mean, you look at Alan Greenspan, you know, for a long time, you know, he walked on water, committed to save the world. Um but I think that it was kind of curious, and, and I think that some of us picked up on this, that, gee, the training wheels are on for an awfully long time here. Mm -hmm. Like, God bet you, this kid, being the U.S. economy, could really ride this bicycle without those low rates. And in fact, you know, I mean, I asked, and a lot of people were asking, a lot of journalists were asking, like, what happens when they need to lower rates when rates are so low already? You know, when there is a crisis. So, you know, I think that um, in retrospect, and maybe even stronger at the time, um, I think calling those moves by the Fed, those moves being keeping rates too low too long are valid. And I think that they suffered from not being considered mainstream, that they you know, were like, oh, you're just kind of a, you know, one of those wacky people on CNBC. They bring him on every time, every couple. But really, actually, this very legitimate. And I think I think it got more credibility more recently. And and I think it's unfortunate maybe the Federal Reserve wasn't listening a little bit better to that. Um, of course, easy for me to say I'm not an economist. I'm not sitting there. I'm not smart. All these things. And I'm Monday morning quarterbacking. But I, I think it's a great question. And then as far as the journalists go, you know, it's always the media's fault, Adam. Um, you know, I, I could find a million stories that that you know were asking these questions and then calling calling uh, them out, but maybe not quite enough, and maybe not quite loudly enough, and in the right places, which is you know the really prominent places, perhaps. All right, great. Well, I, I appreciate you know you, you sharing that, and, and you know I'm I'm not trying to push what one agenda or not, but you just again sit at a, mm -hmm. a rarefied altitude in that media space. So to hear even you say, yeah, you know what? The media probably could have done a better job of, you know, asking the tougher questions, really probing into mm -hmm. this. Um, all right, so back to the policy side of things for a moment. Um, uh, and and I'm, I'm eventually going somewhere with all this, but um, the, uh, the, 
you talked about monetary and then fiscal stimulus coming into the picture. Um, you know, the Fed is getting a lot of criticism, and and, and I think in many ways, rightly so, um, of um, the inflation that we're dealing with right now. Um, and, and certainly, in, in of course, through the course of 2021, I think a lot of people are saying, look, the Fed should have should have started tightening a lot sooner, right? It, mm -hmm. it kept adding, you know, what is it, 120 billion of QE, you know, every month, pretty much through through 2021. Um, but uh, but I think you know the Fed maybe one of the reasons why it, it felt confident that it could do that is is it had done QE, like I said, pretty much for the decade between the Great Financial Crisis and, and 2020. Um, and, and that money wasn't really making it out into the economy and, and pushing prices up the way that it, that you know, we've seen over the past year and a half. That said, um, it was finding its way into financialized assets. And that um, many have said uh, really, you know, contributed to a, a, um, a fast growing and, and deeply unfair or at least, you know, substantially unfair wealth gap where basically those who own financial assets were disproportionately benefiting. They're already rich, basically, were, were benefiting disproportionately from that, where everybody else was you know, getting kind of left out. And then when we when we had the combined, uh, the other part of the, the other barrel of the shotgun with the, the fiscal stimulus, along with the monetary stimulus post-COVID, that really sent, in the supply chain um, kinks that that sent prices, you know, uh, really jumping, um, then, uh, you know, the assets until recently went even higher for the rich people but those people who weren't benefiting from that the, the great masses were then getting really whacked by the increase in cost of living so um you know people have said look they, they, we've kind of blown this asset bubble and now we've created this this high cost of living issue where we're creating really kind of a societal issue here where it's getting harder and harder for the average american just to get by i'm just curious again from your perch um do you have an opinion on that that you know point of view yeah, that's a fascinating topic, and it's something that is actually getting a lot more attention, which is to say, what tools, when, when the government does fiscal and monetary policy, does it lead to wealth and income disparities? And I think the Federal Reserve under Jay Powell, for the first time, is becoming aware of that, understanding that their tools, not only do they not address income and wealth inequality, it to your point, Adam, it may exacerbate it, right? And it's kind of a little bit of a duh moment, but um, <laughs> it's out there nonetheless. And, and if you look at the Federal Reserve's papers, you know, they're really studying it and they're really interested in trying to address that. It's unclear exactly how they're going to do that. There are people with ideas about how to do that, um, you know, earned income tax credits and things like that. Um, and I think you could argue that fiscal policy, you know, was a bit more democratic in that it did put money into the hands of consumers, um, small business owners, et cetera. Uh, it does look like, what do those people do with money? Well, there were real estate, meme stocks, sports betting, you know, <laughs> look at some of those bubbles since March of 2020, those three sectors, for instance, that's what people, I mean, and then never mind like pools and boats and stuff like that. Like, you right. know, it's sort of like, you know, it was like this upper middle class, definitely, but even middle class and possibly even working class, you know, booms and bubbles of little things like that. Um, and much of it was, you know, unhealthy 
um, and leads to problems. I mean, some of it, you know, people really, you know, people forget like that stimulus money really did help this guy tied this guy who owns a pizzeria. It really did help tide him over, you know, so he could keep his business running. People do forget that in the main, that's what was going on. On the other hand, like, you know, sports betting went through the roof and all those companies like grew tremendously at that time. Connected? I think so a little bit. Yeah. Um, and and this is, and it's funny, I actually wasn't planning sort of to get into this territory, but but it's very interesting, which is, um, you know, when you intervene, um, and certainly when you make money cheap and plentiful, which the central banks really have been doing for a long time, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But we sort of did in the extreme um, following COVID, right, with the trillions of, of both monetary and fiscal stimulus. Um, when it becomes cheap and plentiful, um, you get malinvestment. I mean, that's that's just sort of what history has taught us, right? Um, and we've, we've certainly seen that, um, you know, uh, uh, on the institutional side, um, but we've seen it on the retail side, like you're saying there too, right? No, you know, so some people did pay down their debt. We did see debt balances, you know, credit card debts and stuff go down. Um, but we also saw a lot of, you know, GameStop buying and, and boat buying and stuff like that, as you said. And so, you know, obviously there are folks that would just argue, which is, hey, you know, intervening just sort of always makes it worse, right? You know, why don't we just let... The, the the free market system just clear stuff out and and yes that means there will be bus times that are hard but then you get beyond them and and you've set the foundation work for the the next boom time and whatnot so kind of where i was going with this line of questioning and maybe i'll just fast forward to it which is um again you talk uh you know every week with people who i think have sort of the clearest view as to where things are headed you know nobody is a crystal ball but these guys have a lot of experience and i'm wondering are are we are we potentially at a, a secular shift into um, a new era or maybe even several new eras? And I'll give you three things to react to, and then you can answer any way you like. Um, one, you sort of started this conversation about um, inflation and rates. Um, for the past 40 years or so, really for almost all of your career in covering financial media, there has been a disinflationary tailwind in the markets with rates just going lower and lower and then basically held at zero you know, for a number of years. Um, are we seeing a secular shift where, you know, the cost of capital may be higher going forward um, and, uh, and and maybe even, you know, having higher inflation as a result? Um, there's there's already whispers going on that the Fed may may raise its inflation target from 2% to 3% uh, from here. A few trial balloons have been sent out on that. Um, secondly, back to the point of intervention, um, you know, there's been a lot of intervening by the world's central banks. Are we potentially uh, entering an era where they're saying, hmm, that maybe created more problems than we thought, and maybe the central banks need to take a lighter touch going forward once we're through this path? Curious on that. Yeah. And the third, the third part is is back to the social, you know, wealth inequality part. May we be, maybe we'd be seeing a point where they've said, hey, we've really over-rewarded part of society at the expense of the majority maybe we need to do something about that going forward. So I know I just hit you with three questions. Feel free yeah. to answer whichever ones interest you most. Okay, I'll answer all of them. How about that? Because okay, they're all great. interesting, all good questions. Um, just take the last one first. The over-rewarding thing, I think that is something that, um, you know, they're, they're studying and looking at, um, you know, just that maybe these tools 
that Washington has, both in the White House and the Federal Reserve, are too blunt. And, you know, given all the data that we have now before, you know, think about it, Adam, like, you know, 50 years ago, it's like cut rates. What happens? So you call the Kansas City head Fed chief up and said, how are how's activity? And he goes, real good. The loan book is up. I mean, that was that was the extent of data <laughs> in the 1960s. Now they've got like just, you know, how many people are doing exactly what with, you know, Visa and MasterCard? I mean, there's just like, it's just amazing. I mean, you know that. So I, I think I would look for a lot more going on there. And I think that that actually speaks to um, the second question, which is about intervention. And so just to address that a little bit more broadly, and I'll sort of loop back to this, um, you know, specific targeting point, um, you know, this idea that like the Fed did too much, well, okay, maybe, but there were two big lessons, right, of not doing enough or not doing anything. I mean, the not doing anything model was the 1930s, like, oh, nope. Nope, because the free market's going to correct this sucker. And it sure did. Took 10 years, you know, just like the cratering of the global economy. I mean, so much misery, suffering, death. Like, how many, how many excess deaths were there in the 1930s because of that? Like, that's an unknown and probably ungettable number. But it's it's there. I mean, it was a miserable time. I mean, you've seen the movies, right? You can oh, yeah, see absolutely. That. And it's a, it's a politician's nightmare. Right, right. So you got that. And then in, even in 2008, 2009, you know, the argument um, after that was we didn't do enough. We didn't do enough. And so that's why the stimulus packages in 2020 were so robust, because, look, we could have avoided that. If we had just done more, we wouldn't have had like, you know, a year and a half of misery. You know, we could just like we could have just prevented it. And, you know, so flash forward to 2020, it's like, yeah, we had a one month bear market like they prevented a bear market and they really prevented, you know, recession. It was a, a one month recession, I should say, and a little bit of a bear market. But on the main, they prevented most of economic havoc. But of course, then the Newtonian physics um, result was they created inflation. That's a great um, way to put it. Now, so, 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 but because they created inflation by overgoing, by going too far, does that mean they should never do anything again? No, it just means they should recalibrate. And going back to this targeting thing, why not really try to target? In other words, if it was too broad brush, if you just poured too much gasoline, too much fuel in there, why not really try to study and really try to find the parts of the economy, the small business owners? Like really like, okay, how, how can we do a better job there, right? Really making sure small business owners really get relief because we don't really care. You know, Procter & Gamble, you got like, I don't know, $20 billion in the bank. You guys are going to have a lousy quarter, maybe a lousy year, you know, helping your employees. You should do that. But like the pizzeria guy, you know, he needs help. Now, how do we make sure the guy really, you know, helps his employees and doesn't buy five boats? If he buys one boat, I, I can't, we can't like govern that so much, but like we want to stop abuses and we want to make sure that his employees are taken care of. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and these are the puzzles that the Fed and, and the White House, but in particular the Fed need to need to, you know, really consider strongly going forward. 
Yeah. And just on that point alone, you know, there was a Bloomberg article that came out the other week about there's something like 37% um, of all small businesses could not pay their rent in full. I think this was in October, September. Um, and, you know, when you look at, at, at what's happened, you know, over the past couple of years, but certainly since the pandemic, um, you know, all the small businesses got destroyed by the lockdowns, right? Where the, the the big mega corporations, you know, most of them had distribution chains that could ship directly to home or whatnot. So they got to continue to operate. Um, they oftentimes can borrow at much lower rates uh, than the small business can, right? Um, and uh, so there's just, you know, the, play, the, the playing field is sort of increasingly slanted away from these guys. Um, obviously, you know, with, with, um, uh, the cost of hiring humans and whatnot, um, uh, it's disproportionately more expensive for the small business to, to, to hire and maintain employees. They also can't afford to invest in robotics and AI and stuff like that the way that uh, the big companies can. So, uh, you know, there's a real, I don't want to use the word existential, but like there's a real challenge here where, um, you know, it really is the small business that is the driver of jobs uh, in America. Um and uh, we are kind of hollowing out that part of the economy. And I think we, you know, from a policy standpoint, need to ask ourselves, what serves us better? Kind of a, a robust um, and, and very diversified economy with lots of different players? Or do we want a small group of just mega companies, you know, the Amazons and Walmarts of the world, you know, to kind of uh, be the, the, the winners at the end of this game? Um, this might be both above your and my pay grade, but I know you talk to people that think about this stuff. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I was just thinking of what Gina Raimondo is doing at the Commerce Department. And one of her big endeavors is to, you know, have companies uh, manufacture here uh, in the United States in addressing those supply chain problems that we've had, which aren't going away because, of, you know, anti-globalism. I was just at a World Economic Forum lunch yesterday, you know, Davos, um, and they're gearing up for that, which is a meeting of all the, you know, global leaders um, and Klaus Schaub, who's the, the head of it, was saying, you know, hopefully re-globalization, we're going to enter an era of re-globalization. And I said, that's an excellent phrase. I said, I think you're too early. You know, <laughs> I don't think anti-globalism is over yet. Yeah. Um, you look at, you know, just look at Russia, China, and the United States. Like, even the United States is not, and, and Joe Biden is not whole hog globalist. Um, not at all. Um, you know, I think that of the three, he's the most global and he's not against globalism, but it's not like he's the most, he's not like he's Bill Clinton, who was probably the biggest globalist president we ever had, for better or for worse. Um, so Gina Raimondo is trying to have, you know, these factories here in the United States, so we don't have a China problem again, or a Russia problem, you know, or an anything problem. Um, you know, she's been focusing on chip uh, fabs, right? Which, you know, when we were young, Adam, when I was young, Europe, way younger than I am, you know, those were a billion dollars. I think they're like 10 billion now, like a fab to build. But what about like, to your point with these small businesses, and I look at a real, there's a real technology gap. You you mentioned this, that the small companies cannot afford it. Well, forget about it. robotics and AI. What about a server? You know, what about like the guy running this feed lot? You know, like he probably needs a lot more computing power. Uh, does he have a lot of CapEx budget? And he's like, what's that? I, you know, like I got a few laptops. What if there was a technology credit program at the Commerce Department for small businesses, right? 
a, a program instead of, you know, I, I, I'm all for building fabs in the Midwest. It's great. But what about in conjunction with that or in addition to that, having a program where we have technology dollars earmarked for small companies to be able to compete not only globally, but also with big companies in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, especially a lot of people watching this channel, I think would be in in, in big favor of that. Um, I mean, to the extent that the government is going to, you know, be putting capital investment um, back into the economy, um, you know, seeing something like that, which sort of, you know, much more democratic, raises all boats, creates lots of opportunity versus the latest just massive big giveaway to, you know, massive multinational X, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. to, to your, to your, was that just an idea off the top of your head or do you know yes. that the idea is, okay. So <laughs> yes, it was, but, but on the other hand, you know, I'm sure my phone's blowing up right now. Gina Romando saying we already have that program. I, okay. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she does. Maybe they do. Maybe someone else thought of it, but I, I invented it for myself right now. So, but there's probably, it's probably out there already, of course. All right. Well, look, you got my vote when you're, when you're <laughs> running for office there, Andy. Um, all right. Well, look, so, um, you know, we've, we've, sort of cracked early into a couple of the the, the bigger sort of issues that uh, the economy is facing today. Um, so again, you spend your time talking to a lot of the people that are, you know, having to chart the economy into whatever future is coming, you know, based upon the reality on the ground. And I'm just curious, um, you know, first and foremost, like, like, who are the voices that you think we should be listening to most closely right now? You know, are there folks that, that you interview where you just say, you know, this guy's really got his finger on the pulse of key issue X or has a great way of looking at the world? Um, and just in the spirit of, of loading you with way too many questions, I'll tell you the next question I'm going to ask you after this one, which is um, a lot of the people that you and I tend to talk to tend to be older. Um, because they tend to be the people who have, you know, risen to the top, and that takes time. Uh, they also tend to have the most built-up institutional wisdom, um, which makes them really interesting um, and valuable experts to talk to. But I'm also curious uh, if there are any sort of newer, younger voices out there that you are are particularly excited to see begin to take over the torch from the older guard. But but first and foremost, you know, who, who are who are some of the more you think meaningful voices to be listening to right now of any age, um, based upon you know their perspective on where things are headed. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked that second question because you know a lot of times, um, you, know, you think about the older guys and they're mostly guys, right? Um, and you know, I mean, there's a reason for that. You know, it's like they they have a lot of wisdom. They're also, you know, they're in the vanguard. They're in the public eye because they've succeeded. In other words, they didn't flame out, right? right. Um, and so, you know, I'm I've been very fortunate in my in my career to have had many many conversations up to this day, up you know this year, um, <laughs> with Warren Buffett. And you know, I mean, people always want to poke holes in him and increasingly so i must say you know um which is why he's taken a step back um he he hasn't done as many interviews recently not only because he's in his 90s but also because of the political and social climate he says you know i can say that i'm for apple pie nowadays and people are like what oh he's just like he probably owns apples oh you know what about right. cherry pie right what about let's cancel it pie? He's he's an he's an Appleist. Let's cancel him. Yeah, right. Let's cancel him. He's an Appleist. He just and and it's what Buffett calls tribalism. And he says, you know, we're in a period that is just so incredibly tribal right now. 
that it is just, it's hard to say anything about anything without ticking someone off. So, you know, I have my great business and my job. And so I'm, I'm doing it and I'm not going to just put myself out there unnecessarily. Um, you know, so for all the people though, that have, you know, been revisionists of Buffett, I would, I would encourage them to take a step back and, and look at a lot of things he's done. You know, some people criticize him as though he's, you know, kind of a phony, he's just not really that avuncular and, you know, but actually he really is. He, he is avuncular. He's just also brilliant. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not a contradiction. It's a paradox, right? Like you're a brilliant kind of uncle guy. Okay. Old uncle. It just happens to be the case. Um, he's gotten incredibly rich. He's built one of the biggest companies in, in the world. Um, but if you believe in capitalism, that's good. So I still think it's incredibly value to talk, valuable to talk to him. And also his even more senior partner, Charlie Munger, who's yeah, more, more opinionated and, and hilarious. Um, and so that the Charlie and Warren show, you know, continues um, at Berkshire Hathaway. So enjoy while you still can, folks, because it's not going to last forever. Um, Before you go to the next guest, just on that, um, you know, they're both in their 90s. I mean, Charlie's really getting up there. Yeah, you may or may not have insight into this, but but once they retire Mm -hmm. um, one way or another, um, do you have a sense for the new guard there? Or is it is it is have they institutionalized their expertise and wisdom? Do you feel like the Buffett, not only the company, but just sort of the Buffett mindset is in a good position to continue on after them? You know, I mean, we don't really know. I will tell you that that place is like a cult in in the best sense of the word um, in terms of culture. Um, you know, it's pretty clear now that Greg Abel is going to be the next CEO who, um, you know, geez, I don't know how old he is. He's a younger guy, <laughs> um, you know, younger, probably 60s or something like that. I think he probably is, um, which is way younger than those guys. Um, and there's a bunch of other um, very, very competent, managers there as well. Um, the investment managers, there's a Jeet Jane in the insurance side. Um, and there's the two money managers who are there. Um, and I will tell you, you know, one of the, one of the bril- most brilliant things that Steve Jobs did was to pick Tim Cook, right? I mean, it may have been the single most brilliant decision or man, you know, thing that Steve Jobs ever did. He picked an incredible successor. Now, switching over to Apple, I know a lot of people say, well, the Apple hasn't invented anything since he's been there. Like, well, that's true, but he's done an incredible job. I mean, the stock, if you had sold the stock the day that Steve Jobs died, you would have made a huge mistake, mm-hmm. a huge mistake. And I know people who did that. They're like, oh, this is over. Um, I would argue that the biggest job that a CEO has is to pick their successor. And the successor is a reflection of, of their time and their tenure and their, you know, their legacy. So, you know, Buffett has just been, I mean, I went back, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, and people were bugging Buffett about this, you know, when he was in his 60s, who was in it, you know, so he's had a long, long time to think about it. Uh, he has, I, I remember, I actually met him uh, briefly, probably 25 years ago, and um, uh, this topic came up of succession planning, and, and he said, well, you know, uh, he spent a lot of time thinking about it. And he, he mentioned, he said, you know, they find my cold body one day, you know, the first line of my will says, well, check my pulse one more time before you read the rest of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. It's been in his mind a, a long time uh, that people really care yeah. what's going to happen after he goes. 
Um, all right. right. So I interrupted you, though. So you were talking about, you know, obviously, uh, Warren and, and Charlie being really great voices to still listen to while they're still around. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, um, just just doing some other names. I mean, I think, you know, we Tim Cook has earned our respect. Right. I mean, he has earned our respect. And, and Tim, you know, weighs in on a lot of different subjects now. Right. I mean, it's you know, I remember when I was interviewing the CEO of McDonald's years ago and he pulled out the newspaper in Chicago and said, look, every single story on this front page pertains to McDonald's business. And it was like, you know, war here that affected their business and the wheat futures there. And then the drought there. I mean, you know, same thing with Tim Cook. I mean, every single thing on the planet impacts Apple and Apple impacts everything on the planet. So, and he's a very, very thoughtful guy and unlikely. I mean, think about where he came from and who he is and how he succeeded. So um, that is someone that I, I really listen to. I mean, you know, the FANG CEOs, um, the bloom is off the rose. I mean, they could do no wrong, right? So we're talking about like Tim and then also Jeff Bezos. And, you know, he's not the CEO of Amazon anymore, right? He kind of had a romantic thing. And Andy Jassy's the CEO of Amazon, he's kind of underknown and, you know, um, but what, what Bezos did was incredible. Um, and I don't think, you know, that the era of Amazon and Apple are over Google, same thing with Sundar Pichai, you know, it's been a difficult time for him, but that company is, you know, going to be around for a long time and super strong. Um, you know, some other, some other, you know, Facebook, uh, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, just obviously a lot of questions about, you know, about that company. But let's talk about the elephant in the room when we're talking about CEOs, right? Which is Elon. Elon. <laughs> Elon. So Elon was supposed to be the American economy's next Steve Jobs, right? Maybe even better because it wasn't just one company. It was like at least three. Right. Right. With SpaceX and Tesla and, you know, the boring company or and now it's Twitter. And, you know, you can't help but think that wonder if Twitter is just a huge mistake. Just a huge mistake. And just, just siphoning all his attention from all those yeah, other things. And, yeah. yeah. And like, oh, I get it. it's kind of important. It's the town square, but there are other town squares. And, you know, as a Tesla shareholder, I just can't imagine that you're happy about it. I mean, SpaceX is another incredible incredible endeavor you know what about spacex and not only just diverting his attention but also his you know his behavior on twitter and just do you do you really want to be a, a troll and like steve jobs could be like cantankerous difficult right. but he wasn't a troll and you know why he wasn't a troll adam didn't have time Right. He was sort of maniacally focused on Didn't the project. Care. I don't care. I don't care. Here, here's what I have to say about you. I don't care about you. Busy. Right. He wouldn't like <laughs> think of clever things to say and carry sinks around. Just no, no time for that. Right. So I, I just sort of don't get Elon. And I feel badly because I do think, you know, what he's done at Tesla has been incredible. He's revolutionized that industry. He's making the world go electric. He's sending us to space. It's all of a piece. It's amazing. And like, now you have to like, now, well, now he's in a Twitter fight with Tim Cook. Right. Well, 
you know. Right, I that, mean, that Apple is now threatening to take right. a Twitter app out of the App Store. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So all these people, and, and there's so many more people I could talk about, and we, we can see if you have time or want to go into more personalities, but there, they, these people drive our economy, our society, and the global economy and global society forward. And they're so fascinating. And they're not above feelings and foibles, right? right? And that's what makes it all so interesting because, I mean, we were just talking about this with Elon. Like, I don't know if, I mean, I think that he thinks that he's doing the right thing, but there's some ego involved in that as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I'm sure (laughs) the ego is right on with that one. Um, and it is a great point, you know, Twitter, uh, you know, just from a business standpoint, to your point, you know, he's he's involved in in just massive disruptive companies, you named a few, there's still a few others too, like Neuralink and a few other uh, ventures yes. that he's in. Um, it just boggles the mind because any one of those would be a transformative company to build an entire career on. And he's just kind of creating them like barnacles at this point. Um, but Twitter, you know, doesn't have a viable business model at this point in time, like, like Twitter is not just trying to figure out how to keep the lights and servers running, which is what his time is really spent on right now, just because he's gotten rid of so many of the, the people out there. But, um, you know, to your point, like it, it, it might not be a solvable problem and it could be a huge distraction to the other stuff. So um, I do want to get to other, other people. Cause that's, you know, what makes you so unique, Andy, is you, you swim in the same ocean as all these people. I'm curious, have you ever had a chance to talk to Elon? Like you've ever met the man? I met him, but it was it was pretty a pretty brief encounter. Um, it was actually about a year ago um, at the uh, Time Magazine Person of the Year Awards, and um, he was he was given the award, and he presented to um, a uh, a small group. I'd say a hundred people, and I was sitting there. Martha Stewart sitting there. Hey, Elon. When's the truck going to be ready? That was Martha Stewart's question. Yeah, it yeah. was pretty pretty funny. Um, but I I bumped into him backstage and talked to him a little bit. He was with X holding his son, his two year old, who he brought out on the stage. And it was so funny. He came out on the stage, and Ed Felsenthal, um, who was the editor of Time, said, "Oh, that's great. You're out here with X." And Ed was looking around for like someone to come take the his son away so that <laughs> Ed could do the interview. But no, nope. nope. It was just Elon and X were there. Um, but I did talk to him a little bit, um, and I can tell you, and, and it's also you know just up close that that evening that you know he's just such a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, but you know, brilliance is is not alone enough, right? There are a lot of, I mean, you know, like all these damn crooks was Bernie Madoff brilliant? I don't know by some measure, I guess, brilliant enough to steal all those billions of dollars, but but clearly had no moral compass. He was a criminal mastermind and a bad guy. Now, I'm not even beginning to suggest, you know, that, you know, these CEOs are that way. But in other words, like, you got to be brilliant and have great values and have great judgment. I mean, then let another person in the news right now, Sam Bankman-Fried right. from FTX, you know, brilliant guy. I mean, you know, the son of two Stanford professors, right? Well, well, not just professors, right? But lawyers, and I believe compliance lawyers, which is what makes the story so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you know, just incredible. And then his sometimes girlfriend, her parents were both 
are both professors at MIT. So we're talking like brain power coming up. Boom. So yep. you get a lot of brain power, but brain power ain't enough. You got to have a lot of other stuff up there as well, right? Right, right. And and of course, this is a, a lesson that's been learned many times. Um, older guards like us remember the failure of long-term capital management, mm. right? Which was supposed to be the smartest guys ever, right? And, and, and Ron, and, the smartest guys in the room. And Ron, the smartest guys in the room. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we've we've seen this happen a lot, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, what's so interesting is that, you know, everything's different, right? Like, oh, you know, Tesla's different and Twitter's different and crypto's different. But really, like all the lessons still apply, Adam. Like, you know, like a lot of the FTX problems with leverage, right? Right. And, you know, gee, that's timeless. And there's hubris is involved in a lot of this as well. And 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 so, you know, sort of like the label and the form changes, but the questions of substance remain. Right. All right, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the original question because you're really wading into the exact territory I was I was hoping to get into with you, which is, so when you look at the panoply of folks that you have met and interacted with over the years, like you, you mentioned Warren and Charlie, you mentioned Tim Cook, like like who are some of the guys that you just feel like this is the the person who really has the right perspective or leadership qualities or whatever? Like they, this is a channel gets watched by people you know every day mm -hmm. who are trying to uh leverage the insights of great thinkers right so yeah. like who are some of the people you're like these are really good people to listen closely to when they speak because i think they really have it in terms of what we need right i mean you know there's actually some good people on wall street we haven't talked about them and there's some familiar names but i'm going to say them anyway which are you know jamie diamond um which are brian moynihan um and that's an interesting dynamic there. And I'll pause just just get into that briefly. Like sure. Jamie Dimon, CEO, JP Morgan has been there for a long time, done a great job. Um, you know, had some dust ups there, of course. Um, it's hard to run a bank for that many years without having any problems. You know, he had the whale and other other problems as well. But um, and Brian Moynihan has an equally great um, track record, really, at Bank of America. And Brian Moynihan just loves the fact that Jamie Dimon steals all the thunder. Now, you might think that's unusual, but basically, like, he runs cover for Brian. Like, Jamie's out, always out there. And I know um, Jamie's PR people, and they have, they're one of the most – they have like, an incredibly fascinating job because he shoots from the hip, mm -hmm. and sometimes he just hits people's windows, yep. and cars, and all kinds of stuff. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, he just says stuff. Um and, you know, meanwhile, Brian Moynihan just goes about and does his job. Um, you know, I, I, you know, there's and there's then there's Larry Fink, who's more controversial at BlackRock, but a very thoughtful guy. And he's gotten gone full into this whole, you know, stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism, going all the way back to Milton Friedman. Right. And, you know, whether it's the, the primary responsibility of the CEO is to just maximize value for the shareholder or does one consider the other constituencies? You know, I read somewhere that one time, um, an incredibly well-run company, which is Costco, and Costco rated the highest if you looked at its ratings by its shareholders, employees, and customers, okay? It was the company that scored the highest of the three amongst any American company. Think about that measure. That's an incredible measure, right? Yep. What other companies 
you know, when you think about the different different constituencies. So I think that's super, super uh, important. And, you know, you can you can read what these guys say. They they put out shareholder letters, um, occasionally do interviews. Um, so so, you know, on Wall Street, those are some of the people, you know, I, I, one other person, you know, when it comes to economics, who, you know, is it can be a can be a rub people the wrong way um, is Larry Summers. And, you know, he's a really smart guy. And I love reading him. He's provocative and he does yeah. not hold back either as well. So there's just so many interesting people. I mean, like Anthony Scaramucci, I get a kick out of listening to him. I don't agree with him with a lot of stuff, but, you know, I love people who have strong opinions and have fun ways of articulating things. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and he's a little bit I mean, he's 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 not a spring chicken, but he's a little bit on the younger side versus the oh, yeah. the Granthams, the Dalios, the Buffets, et cetera. Right. Um, so on that vein, you know, are there um, are there folks whom the torch may be being passed to right now? I guess Musk would be one of them uh, in terms of, you know, kind of captain of industry. Yeah. He's only 51 or two right now. Um, but are there are there other sort of up and comers or younger voices that you um you know, are kind of looking at it with some excitement as, okay, I think this is going to be a good person to take the torch from these venerated older leaders. Yeah. I mean, you know, you look at some chip CEOs like Lisa Shu of uh, AMD and Jensen Huang of um, NVIDIA. Um, they're younger, they're, you know, tech, tech names of, of increasingly big companies. Um, you know, uh, I, get, I don't know, is Mary Barra that much younger? I mean, she's she's an interesting person. Sachin Nadella, we didn't talk about him. I nope. mean, there are people, they're not exactly in their 20s and 30s. Zuck is the youngest one, but I'm going to put a, I'm going to take a pass there. Okay, um, sure, go ahead. <laughs> um, but, you know, these people in their 40s and 50s, I think, maybe 60s and some of them. Um, so there are always, you know, new people coming up. Um, um, and, and those are some names. I'm just trying to Think of some other some other folks as well. Jane Frazier is a new you know face on Wall Street running Citibank. I mean, she has a big job to do there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how she kind of you know is able to execute because you know that company has not returned to its stature you know from pre two thousand eight. Right. Right. Yeah. At all. So that'll be that's a real challenge that she has. So th those are some names, I guess. Okay. No, that's great. And and look, you know, uh, the the like I said, this audience is is one that loves to listen uh, to the insights of people in those positions. So you've given them a couple of good names to go and and research. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, Andy. So again, you you talk to these people all day long. Um, I, I not so much. Hey, Adam, you're filter of the consensus for what the experts think. And I, I believe that you probably have a lot of that same um, knowledge from your vantage point of just being able to synthesize a lot of what all these people have said. And then you come up with sort of your sense of like, okay, I think, you know, from most people I talk to, they, they, most of them seem to think X is going to happen. So I want to, I want to toss a couple of outlook questions your way, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking here at the end of 2022, we're about to go into 2023. Um, uh, you know, economic growth has been challenging this year. Uh, first two quarters had negative GDP prints. Um, we may be getting, uh, you know, much higher GDP prints at the end of the year. 
Um, though I think some of that is is um, not necessarily driven by just organic growth. Some of that is is with the way in which GDP is is accounted for uh, that might make things look a little bit rosier than they are. Um, obviously, we still have um, inflation while it's beginning to come down. CPI is beginning to come down. It's still quite elevated. That is compressing margins. Um, we are seeing consumers weaken here. Um, people are taking on more debt. The savings rates going down. Um, real wages continue to to drop month after month after month. Um, so we're seeing sort of you know consumer spending outlook weaken here. Um, and so, anyways, there's a lot of people that are saying, okay, look, odds of a recession next year um, are looking pretty good. Um, let's start there. Um, do you do do you agree with that outlook? Do you have a different take? I don't necessarily, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, we're in Fortress America, and and things are not so bad right now. I mean, obviously the job market is weakening, but you know, three point seven percent unemployment. I mean, it's you know, so it's not such a such a bad place. People are still getting jobs. Um, people are losing jobs. I think about hundred thousand people in the tech sector plus have lost jobs. Um, yeah, but, like every every couple of days, there's a ten thousand right, buyout. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, the reason why I'm somewhat optimistic is because of the international um, arena, and that is, you know, the world is being incredibly constrained right now by both Ukraine and China, and there's reason to believe that both of those problems can be resolved to a degree. Um, in, in the short to medium term. Um, so Ukraine, like right now, Macron is kind of uh, the French, the president of France is, is trying to work on a solution right there. I mean, there's a Nobel prize uh, out there to be had for anybody who wants to solve that. Now, the whole trick is, you know, withdraw with victory or whatever we used to say in Vietnam, peace with victory or something. You know, how do you make them, how do you, how do you create an exit I mean, the Russians only control 17% of Ukraine now. I mean, it's like someone was saying a DMZ. That's not going to be popular either place. But at some point, you know, that's going to get resolved. And I think sooner rather than later. And I think China is definitely going to get resolved. And the, the, the resolving I'm talking about is COVID and the lockdowns. And, and I think that, you know, that Xi Jinping was looking to wind this up into the new year. But, you know, there was that fire in Western China, which spurred these demonstrations now, um, which um, I, I think is going to encourage them to move maybe more quickly. Not that he's going to want be, to be seen as bowing to pressure. But in other words, if, if China really opens up, I mean, it's the last country with these restrictions. That's why the Chinese people are so unhappy. There's, it used to be that China was more strict than the other countries. Now it's just an a complete outlier. Right. There's, no one does that stuff. I mean, I've been traveling all over Europe and the Middle East over the past couple of weeks. There's no masks. There's no testing. There's no quarantines. There's no nothing. Right. And, and, and like and in I China, think, they're still like locked in factories. Like they can't even go home. They, they just shut down Disney Shanghai. I mean, there's a two week quarantine to travel around to come if you're Chinese to get back to China. Now. I mean, there's the, the Chinese, you know, officials can't. I mean, it's it's a mess. So when that opens back up, I'm not saying we're re-globalizing yet, but at least that's going to be just a huge you know, like releasing a spring into the global economy. And and that, and even if we get a kind of a stalemate in Ukraine, hugely positive for the global economy. 
um, and by extension, the U.S. economy. So, and the other, just one last quick thing about, I have never, ever in my entire life, 63 short years, remembered a time where everyone is so unanimously and unequivocally certain we're going to have a recession. Yeah. We are going to have a recession. I mean, and so there's, you're talking about the, the, Point of view that look if everybody expects it then its likelihood of happening is actually probably yeah now you could argue that two ways i mean and i think there has been a lot of like we better cut back because a recession coming in and that creates a recession right that has been a on the other hand like there's just something cosmic about like you know if everyone sees it is it really going to happen like right. okay where you know and and that's like sort of a weird animal spirits thing so please don't mortgage the, the the farm on that but it's just a weird <laughs> thing i want to point out right uh, it's a good point hey because you mentioned the word mortgage um what's your what's your general sense of how the housing market's going to fare um you know because you again we started this whole conversation on the topic of, of rates and and what a game changer they've been you know mortgage rates have almost tripled since like 15 months ago or so um and 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 housing had already gotten to a price where it had become extremely unaffordable uh, for most new buyers. So um, do you think we have some sort of material correction due in that market? Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, real estate's all very regional. So, yep. I mean, rates are the thing that goes across all geographies. Right. Um, but NoCal is different from New York City, although maybe not that much, those two geographies. But Iowa's different from both of us. Yeah. Wichita um, are very different from where we're right, at. exactly. Um, and of course, tripling, you know, one to three is different from five to fifteen. Um, yes. So uh, to be to be fair, there, um, you know, no doubt, no doubt, the real estate market has cooled. I mean, I know people who are real estate brokers, and they're like, "Uh, <laughs> it's bad." Well, you know, there, you know, where this goes back to the early part of the conversation, Adam. It's like th this is a tool that is effective on that market, right? Yeah. I mean, it raising rates does cool the housing market, and it does so across the country. Um, I don't believe, you know, we haven't really talked about this, but I don't really think, and this is a hugely controversial topic, and I love it, which is like, you know, this whole thing getting back to another early part of the conversation, which is how temporal is inflation? Yep. I think it is somewhat. And there's, you know, because, yeah, you got COVID, anti-globalism, Ukraine, at least two of those things at some point are going to go away. Um, anti-globalism, not so sure. But mitigating inflation are two very important things, which are slow and or low population growth, right? Number one, that's very anti-inflationary. And two, technology, hugely anti-inflationary, driving down the cost of clothes, of oil and gas, of food, of manufacturing, of everything all the time. Oh, those new fabs that Gina Raimondo is building, and they're going to be so much more expensive in the Midwest than in... Yeah, but every day, managers are going to be putting in new technology to make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. You know, employment then becomes a problem. But, you know, I mean, it's disinflationary, anti-inflationary. So, you know, that's why I don't think inflation is going to be a huge, a huge raging problem going forward. And that's why I don't think mortgage rates are going to go to the moon. I don't think we're going to have a repeat in the 1970s here. I don't. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and obviously that point you just made is not just a point for 2023. You're, you're, you're looking out, you know, yeah. decade, decade right. on that. 
Yeah. All right. And so I, I think I'm going to know your answer to this question, but it's a nice it's a nice uh, wrapper to the end of this conversation. By the way, Andy, thank you for giving us so much of your time. This has been a really fun conversation. Um, so, you know, general market outlook. So, you know, the economy and the markets are not uh, the same thing, um, but markets tend to try to anticipate where the economy is going. Sounds like you're saying eh, economy might not be as bad as some of the bears are are, are thinking it may be here. Um, so my question to you is going to be, do you think the, the the bear market of 2022 is is largely over at this point, or do you think we'll make um, we'll slide into new lows next year? Um, my guess from what you've said is you might be a little bit more sanguine um, on the situation, but don't let me put words in your mouth. Yeah, I might be a bit more sanguine. Okay. <laughs> so you're right, Adam. Um, you know, what is the, I'm just looking right now, the S&P is down 17% year to date. Um, but only down 2% um, since September, September to here, right? So we bounced back from the September low, um, but we're still down 17% for the year. Um, the question is, how many people agree with me about China and Ukraine, and is that baked in, right? And how many people agree with me about inflation, and is that baked in? Right. That's, you know, I mean, that's what makes a market, right? Right. Um, I'm a little nervous to say that, you know, it's all upside from here because simply because we haven't really felt that much pain. I mean, you know, yeah, if you owned a big slug of FTX, you are devastated. But there's not that many people <laughs> that that really have that. Or if they did, it was a little bit of, um, you know, Atlantic City money, as we used to say in the, in, in northern North America. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'd be sort of more of a, flattish. And then I think if one of these things gets resolved, I think that, you know, I don't think it is that baked in, um, you know, this inflation, China, Ukraine. So one of those things, we get a clear, all clear sign, a really definitive, all clear sign. I think there'd be a lot of upside um, if we get a real like, hey, that thing's done. Okay, great. So, you know, we've, we've, we've had a rough year, right? Yeah. When you combine stocks and bonds together, it's been one of the worst years mm -hmm. in a long, you know, some say centuries in terms of the, the collective performance of both. Yes. Um, and so you're, you're not, I don't want to use the word predicting, but, but you, you, you could see 2023 as being a bit of a snapback year. Um, uh, especially if we get some of these, I'm not going to call them black swans because we, we have a sense of what they could be, but but some of these triggers that could be quite bullish to both economic growth and and maybe just removing some of the anxiety that's in the markets, like particularly around the war. Right. Yeah. Of course. You know. You know, a little nuclear weapon by Putin. All bets are yeah. off. Yeah. 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 Let's let's, stuff, well, right? let's let's hope yeah. that doesn't yeah come into play exactly. at all. Um, all right. Well. Um, Andy, thank you. Um, it's really been a total joy to, uh, well, to first to finally meet you here, uh, but also get to see the world through your eyes um, again, because you you talk to so many people who, you know, are really, they've got their hands on the tiller in terms of where things are headed. So, you know, you have, uh, you have an access that very few people do. And so therefore your collective synthesis uh, carries a lot of weight because of that. Um, for folks that have really enjoyed getting to uh, to meet the man uh, behind the interviews uh, in, in this one. Um, if they want to follow you and your work, where should they go? Well, I'm still on Twitter uh, at, at Serwer and uh, on Yahoo Finance. Um, you can, you know, search for it. And uh, but, you know, it's a whole team at Yahoo Finance does does such tremendous work. So I'd encourage people to go there and, and look at all the, the great things that are going on there. 
Great. And and you have, um, what, what, is it influencers with Andy Sewer? Is that the name yes. of your series there? Yeah, 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 exactly. Those are some long form interviews that I do of business leaders. Exactly. Fantastic. Okay. Well, Andy, when we edit this, we'll put up the the links there on the screen to your uh, your Twitter handle and in, in, in your interview series and whatnot. Um, but uh, it's really just been a wonderful pleasure. Andy, thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Really enjoyed the conversation. All right. Well, now is the time on Wealthion where we bring in the financial advisors officially endorsed by Wealthion. I'm joined as usual by the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, John Lodra and Mike Preston. Uh, we'll react quickly to what Andy said earlier in the uh, interview here, and then we'll get into what the markets have done over the past week, because we've just, just in the past uh, hour or two, had uh, Jerome Powell, head of the Federal Reserve, uh, come out and deliver this month's uh, key presser, um, and the markets have reacted to that. So uh, let's see, guys. Uh, Mike, why don't we start with you? Um, what's your reaction to... Uh, Andy's uh, our journey there with Andy. It, it was good. It was it was uh, a perspective. Uh, you know, Andy's a journalist. He does a great job, I think, of covering the news and and you know painting a picture of of uh, where we are, the risks that we face, and the path we've traveled. And really, there's a lot of talk about central banking and the Federal Reserve because that really is all that the market has followed for so long. You know, he says that um, when you asked him about the economy, he said these are tricky times, I think were his words. And they are tricky times because, frankly, uh, just looking at the market today, the NASDAQ's up almost 5%, the S&P's up over 3%. And all of that happened in the second half of the day after Powell just said a few words, hinted at maybe slowing the pace of rate hikes. Um Tricky times when you can have a 5% move in a matter of an hour, and that's a good part of a whole year's gain or uh, in some years, you know? So that's the kind of market we're dealing with that just really turns on a dime based on what the Fed says. And this is a market, as Andy said, where people have been buying the dips for a long, long time. How long is that going to work? Well, it still seems to work because... Here we are with the Dow down 6.4% off the all-time high. Looks like the S&P is down around 15.4% as we speak after today's big move. Those are those are pretty small numbers off the all-time high of what has been a really big blow-off top, kind of parabolic move that came on the heels of $7 trillion in monetary and fiscal stimulus post-COVID time, uh, post-March of uh, 2020. And so we've been living through the largest bubble ever. We've seen everything go way up and some of those things go way down. Everything being Bitcoin, meme stocks, art, houses, used cars, stock market, everything. And this market's been trying to top, in my view, for almost a full year since December of last year. Um, and Andy points out how every bear market's been really quick and each one's been recovered quickly. And the 2008-2009 bear market wasn't even a very long bear market, never reached undervaluation. That came right back. And then in 2020, we had a one-month bear market and a one-month recession. So now the belief is that the Fed will completely avoid all recessions in bear markets, and we think that's not the case. So there's so much more um, that he's talked about. I'll leave some content for John and for you to talk about. But he touched on, on a number of other things, including inflation outlook and so forth. We continue to think this market's very dangerous. Um, it's frustrating for, for people 
like us that preach prudence and say the market's dangerous because nothing seems to hurt the market, seems to be relatively bulletproof and bounces very quickly. How long will it keep bouncing? How long will it be a dip buyer's market? Probably not for too much longer, but we can't tell the future. We know from data that valuations and market internals are bad if you care about returns in the future. So with risk-free rates above 4%, we'd strongly suggest that you keep a good slug of cash and treasury bills or things like that waiting for better prices. So I guess I'll stop my my sermon for now, but but uh, <laughs> thanks for the opportunity. All right. Well, well, John, we'll come to you here for your, your reaction to Andy. Um, I do want to get into the day's massive jump that we saw. Um, of course, that was in response to Jerome Powell's um, press conference after his uh, prepared remarks were released. Markets clearly heard something that they liked. Um, but but before we get there, getting back to Andy, um, you know, people on the program ask me to bring in people who have differences of opinions. Uh, a lot of our um, recent experts, I don't select them for this, but people have interpreted them to be more on the bearish side. Uh, they wanted, they've been wanting to hear some people who are more on the bullish side, um, just so we don't have an echo chamber here. Uh, Andy, by his own admission, is more sanguine um, than I think a lot of our recent guests on this program have been. Um, now, Andy is not, he's not a capital manager, right? He's, he's not an analyst either, um, but he is a financial uh, media expert, journalist who's been in the business for 40 years, as I said. So, you know, he's been steeped in this industry for a long time and he talks to the guys who are running the show. Uh, and as he said in the interview, you know, he's, he is not super worried about a, a further continuation um, of the bear market next year. He feels like it's either going to be, you know, relatively modest year or it's going to have potential for some of these big bullish upsides. Uh, you know, a couple he mentioned, like peace with uh, Russia um, or maybe, you know, China reopening, stuff like that. So um, I'm just curious, you know, A, what you took away from the, the conversation and, and, and B, maybe you can react to, to a, uh, Andy's sanguineness there. Yeah, thank you, Adam. I, I too enjoyed Andy's uh, perspectives as a journalist and, and compliment to you uh, in, in a fairly uh, similar journalistic but much more educational role to to, to be able to uh, talk right toe to toe with with someone of his tenure is, is a testament to what you built here at, at Wealthion. Um, one of the kind. things that I, I really appreciate about Andy uh, reminding us and, and viewers is um you know, most po most folks, even in our seats today, and most investors today, haven't really ever been through a, tr a true, true uh, bear market, inflationary cycle market. The, the last real one of of that sort was the '66 to '82 timeframe. There was almost 20 years there where the stock market went nowhere. Uh, actually, it went a lot of places. It went really high, really low. There were several uh, furious bounces, by uh, followed by several furious declines, uh, all to go nowhere over almost 20 years. And that was a, a similar period to, uh, in, in, as today in the sense that uh, inflation was a problem, uh, a bigger problem than policymakers understood it to be. And valuations were, were quite rich going into that, into that uh, period. Um, so I'm glad he reminded us of that. Mike and I were were kids back then. We weren't sitting in our seats, but we do uh, have the, of the ability and, and desire and, and thirst to go back and study market cycles uh, many many decades, and and so we can take the learnings of of, of those those periods. But he 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 likened. Um, well, he first of all he talked about the um, sentiment of today not really being consistent with any sort of bear market bottom. 
Um, and by contrast, he talked about in the early 80s how uh, one of the main magazine covers, whether it was Newsweek or something like that, published a, a cover that basically said stocks are dead. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, during that time, um, people didn't want to buy stocks. They had gotten so burned that uh, a 16% CD, which, you know, believe it or not, that's what where they were, um, was all they wanted to think about. Yet we know with hindsight that uh, back in 82, uh, was one of the best generational buying times for for stocks in all of history. Um, so so we look at those those analogies and, and the differences of today versus then. But we also look at hard data. You can look at valuations. Um, you know, today the the non non adjusted non normalized uh, Schiller PE is is uh, about thirty, low thirty, somewhere in that ballpark. Back in eighty two, it was six and change. So we're we're five times more richly valued today than we were then, that true bear market bottom. And, and that's with uh, earnings um, that haven't really, uh, we think, digested the, the slowing of the economy that would be the necessary thing for, for a, ped, a Fed to stop or pivot or moderate or whatever like that. And in fact, very few analysts have even priced in any kind of earnings degradation in the stock market. I think Morgan Stanley might've been the first Wall Street bank to kind of just this week come out with a you know, uh, even a modest decline in their earnings projections. So we think there's a whole lot more uh, beneath the, the surface of this market that is is than just a headline uh, Fed 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 announcement that causes the market to, to flurry. You know, I just want to remind folks the Fed has presided over every bubble bust in the last you know uh, well over time. I mean, the tech bubble of 2000, the housing bubble, the Fed was right at the helm there, just like they are now. And in fact, they were easing interest rates pretty aggressively during both of those massive declines. So, so you know, I know it's tempting to, to you know, want to salivate at every, every Fed uh, meeting or, or statement, but let's remember that um, it, it, you know, they've presided over some pretty large uh, bubbles that in, in many people's estimation were, were largely of their fueling. Uh, and, and, Lowering interest rates, if that's ultimately what they do, is oftentimes a sign of things really coming undone, rather than a sign of, hey, let's let's greet this with uh, buying things to 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 new and ever higher prices. Yeah, and actually, let's let's take that last point there. So, um, you know, I, I, I've been in recording interviews all day, so I really haven't had much of a chance to parse the specifics of the press conference there with with Jerome Powell. But from the little I've been able to garner so far, um, uh, you know, he a lot of what he said was actually relatively hawkish. Um, he just had sort of one substantial dovish mention, which is really what the market glommed onto. And as you guys said, Mike, I think you were saying the S&P is up 3% today and the Nasdaq's up 5 And that all happened pretty much in the last hour or two uh, of the market action once Powell was giving his press conference. Yeah, the Nasdaq's up four, four and a half, and the S&P's up uh, a little over three. Yeah, okay. quite a bit. Yeah, just gargantuan moves in a very short period of time, right? So it looks like the quote that really got the market excited to make that big jump was the following. Uh, the time for moderating the pace of rate increases may come as soon as the December meeting, right? So you you basically take that as the Fed saying, um, yeah, we might start slowing our role in terms of how aggressively we hike going forward from here, and we could do it as, as soon as, as next month. Um, so, you know, you balance that with some of the other things that, that Powell said, like um, the Fed's going to need restrictive, keep policy restrictive for some time. 
Um, the rate peak is going to be likely somewhat higher than was forecast just back in September. So even though the pace of increases might not be as aggressive, he's saying we might still get to a higher rate than what we were thinking uh, only relatively recently. And uh, and again, he seems to still be sticking to his, um, hey, look, folks, don't expect to pivot, right? Uh, we're going to get up there and then we're going to hang out there for a long time because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. So we're going to adopt a wait and see approach. And he, he, he in the short parts of the press where I was able to look at, he kept saying, History has shown us that if you if you um, reverse policy too quickly when you're trying to quell inflation, um, that tends to be a big error because if inflation truly isn't tamped out, it just sparks right back up again. So he's actually still talking pretty tough, but the markets just said, hey, all we heard was, uh, you know, uh, you're not going to hike as aggressively, at least on, as on a pace basis going forward. And we're interpreting that as, 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 you know, we're sniffing out a pivot in that news somewhere. So, Mike, Mike what do you read here? Yeah, I, I read a, you know, just a market that is, uh, <laughs> it's spoiled. It's and it, and it and it constantly looks at the optimistic side here. You know, there was a time a month or so ago where short-term pessimism was was actually front and center. You know, there was some a lot of short-term, maybe it was two months ago now, September. Um, when there was short-term pessimism and, and short-term oversold readings. And some of those were pretty extreme historically, but they have all reversed back and quickly and have gone completely in the other direction. You know, we're back to uh, uh, optimism and maybe maybe even a slight bit of euphoria here because just look at the reaction. Like you you, you very astutely sniffed out that the, the, the maybe the rates are actually going to be higher. Maybe Powell was trying to, to brace the market for higher rates than was otherwise anticipated. And yet saying, well, we might actually slow down the pace, but it may stay higher for longer. In other words, the ceiling will be higher. That should be negative, right? But all the market wants to see is the positive. And everything yeah. is so instantaneous. You know? And sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but but I believe this has happened several times already where Powell has basically said, no, market, you're not getting it, right? Like, I don't think Powell wants the market to be jumping like this based on his comments. He's trying to tighten monetary conditions, and this is loosening them by having the markets rally by this much. So yep. to a certain extent, the market by jumping like this may actually be increasing the odds that Powell is going to have to double down even further on his hardball tactics. It might very well be a short term, um, you know, a short squeeze here. Um, it was a lot of option players in the market, a lot of short-term algorithmic trading and, you know, short-term the market only, is only again, sniffing out the positive, but that's the way I read it. And, and particularly after your comments sinking in, cause this is all this only happened in the last couple hours, Powell is probably likely trying to, to, to manage psychology here. That's all the fed has is, is their words really. Um, and that's their biggest tool anyway. And um, maybe they're trying to manage psychology. And, and I've got to think if that's what Powell's trying to do, that he's disappointed with the market reaction here. And, you know, ultimately that that could result in a surprise to the downside. All we have to go on here is, is actual math evaluations, which remain insane. And so it's been uh, it's, it's been a long road for anybody that's been been talking about fundamentals and valuations and mathematics, but that's what we've got to go on here. And it to me, it just shows a sick market that's 
you know, just Pavlovian in response and wants its candy right now, you know? So I don't think it's right. Really are setting up here a game of chicken where, um, Powell is telling the markets, Hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm still going to do whatever it takes to kill inflation. And the markets are saying, no, we don't think so. We think you're going to change course sooner. Right. And so, uh, it seems to me that, that, of the likely things that could happen when I look at the, the potential paths, it seems to me there's there's good potential here for the market really to be setting itself up for disappointment here. Um, you know, one is that um, Powell doesn't pivot and Powell is true to his word, right? And at some point the market has to realize, okay, we partied way too early and uh, we're gonna have to bring prices back down to reflect that. Um, or it gets what it's looking for, which is a pivot from Powell but what might cause that pivot is something truly bad breaking that forces Powell off of his, you know, ironclad commitment to keep things going, to get inflation under control. And the conditions that would cause a pivot, like, conditions like that that would cause that type of pivot could be extremely non-bullish conditions, right? John, I see you nodding as I'm saying this. Yeah, exactly. I think um, the kinds of things they, they've been looking for, let's harken back to uh, Powell's Jackson Hole speech this past summer. Um, he was very uh, uh, adamant and, and uh, purposefully using words like, we are going to feel some pain. We're going to need to feel some pain. There hasn't, I mean, there's definitely pain. There's uh, uh, cost of living has been um, very untenable for many folks. And, and uh, you know, there's pa been pain out there in that sense. Um, but in terms of a broad economic um, recessionary type thing, big job losses, that that really hasn't set in yet, and that's exactly what they've been trying to to force on uh, uh, in, into the into the economy because they need to. Um, so so yeah, and, and even just two days ago, you had influential Fed speakers like James Bullard, the St. Louis Fed president, uh, very hawkish. So so there's almost a um, you know kind of a split personality going on here in the span of two days, which is just speaks to the psychological kind of torture chamber that that oftentimes comes out maybe intentionally from from the fed and its its pressers um yeah, I, I will note that everything rallied today um gold rallied bonds rallied uh things well, were and, the, and, and the dollar was down rallied. hard which yeah, is dollars down so yeah. so you know um some of the things it's not it's not just the u.s stock market you know some of the things that have been very beaten up lately and some of the things that we've we frankly have favored rallied very strongly today as well um so everything got bought today except the dollar um you know uh, i think i think oil was off uh, or at least some of the oil companies but but pretty much everything rose emerging markets um bonds of, of many many stripes precious metal silver was up four and a half percent i think today um you know just one day we we you know fed days are oftentimes head fakes you know it's too, too early to say what what happens from here but yeah i mean the messaging all along has been we don't want to stop accommodations too early we want to get this job done and, and it's only going to come by pain and we just don't think the pain has been big enough uh to to warrant a, a major policy shift yeah, great, great point. And and two two things to add to it. One is on the pain side, um, as we've talked about a lot in this channel, um, we're we're sort of just beginning to see now the expression of a lot of the rate hikes that were made back in like um February and March, right? And there's been a whole bunch made since then. 
that we still haven't really fully felt the full brunt of because of the delay and how policy is manifested. So a lot of that pain that you're talking about, John, like that's all still ahead of us from here. So when we look out at the next couple of quarters, there's very little that I see that's going to counterbalance um, the very constrictive economically impact of, of these steps that have already been taken that have yet to fully be expressed here. So in terms of things like margin compression on companies, in terms of uh, companies therefore having to lay off people, and we're continuing to see a steady drumbeat of, of, of layoffs happen here, in terms of seeing housing prices continue to roll over, um, so the negative wealth effect and impacts that that's going to have, um, I, you know, I, I just don't see a lot for the market to be front running here in terms of the removal of pain going forward. It, it seems like, you know, we're, we're still going to have a lot to go through here. So, so we'll see. And then the other thing is, um, I, I inter uh, launched an interview yesterday with Michael Green and, uh, he said, He's quite worried about 2023. He's, he's much less sanguine than Andy is. Um, and he said, uh, I don't think we realize, you know, we're, we're lighting a match inside of a warehouse that we don't quite realize exactly how many explosives are, are packed in around us here. And he said, you, when you combine that with what he calls the obtuseness and maybe the deliberate obtuseness of the folks running the Federal Reserve, um, it makes him really nervous. And we spent a little bit of time as well uh, regarding the Federal Reserve talking about the political infighting that that he believes is happening at the very top levels there, that you've got Lael Brainerd, who's gunning for, you know, pal's seat. So there are times where she is issuing dovish leaks. Uh, and then you've got Bullard, who's sort of trying to chart a middle course, um, both of them, you know, hoping at some point in the future, maybe to sit in the Fed chair. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it doesn't inspire confidence. I think the analogy I used, it's like being in a plane and hearing the pilot and co-pilot and navigator all arguing in the cockpit about how to fly the plane. And they all have a very different, uh, strategy of how they want to fly it. And you're like, that just doesn't make me feel good as a passenger in this plane here. So there just seems to be a lot there that just makes me kind of like you guys scratch my head and say, what is the market throwing a party for here? All right. Yeah. I see both of you guys nodding. Yeah. I'm just mind. wondering, is, is am I the only one that thinks that these people have too much power? <laughs> you know, maybe that's an extreme view, but they have so much power. And, you know, it's very political, as you point out there, even though the Fed is not supposed to be a political organization. So um, that's yeah. the only comment that I have. Yeah. On that point, Mike, I, uh, one of the things that that Andy shared as a journalist was that he um, he was very kind in saying this or maybe in, in towing the line a little bit that but that his peers um, maybe are a little too seduced or, or infatuated with the Fed, maybe don't ask the hard questions or or challenge enough of the 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 wisdom of the policies. Um, and and he'd be forgiven for uh, or the the journalistic community community might be forgiven somewhat for some of that because there's been a few very poignant examples where journalists have have asked the hard questions and and put some some tough questions in front of the Fed uh, press people and Chairman Powell and, and his predecessors and you know essentially have been shown the door you know not not given access you know so so there is a uh, you know don't don't question the 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 authority kind of persona around the Fed and you know I think he nicely kind of if if not. Um, you know, softly points that out in, in his his peers. Yeah. And 
guys, you remember we had Pedro da Costa uh, on for an interview two or three months ago. Um, I'll put up a link to that here for folks that want to watch it. Um, but Pedro very famously was shown the door by asking us a tough question of Janet Yellen. Um, and to your point, Mike, I mean, he, he, that, 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 that's what he does for a living is he covers central banks, most notably the Federal Reserve. Uh, and to get booted from, you know, basically the press room is, you know, it's almost an existential kill shot, you know, in that industry. Now, uh, that, being, that being said, you know, that's these guys' jobs. Though. I mean, it, it is their job to to get the right answers for, for the public. And I'll tell you, the little bits of the presser that I watched today, I, I didn't see anybody asking hard questions. Maybe they asked them in the parts I didn't get a chance to watch, but but nobody there was taken pal to task that I could see. I just wanted to comment that I was talking to a uh, a new client yesterday that happens to be Chinese, grew up in China, and then later in Taiwan, he said. And he said, did you see recently, and this happened in the last week or so, I think, and I didn't go and verify the video, but he said, did you see the um, the video of the president of China sitting at the table and and on his side was Janet Yellen? I, you know, I didn't see that. And he says, why is, you know, the former head of the Federal Reserve sitting next to the president of China, you know? And so I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's just, it struck me as odd that they have a seat at the table with other uh, heads of state, you know? And um, that to me just seems very political and very, just strange. Yeah, well, uh, and obviously she's the head of the treasury uh, nowadays, Janet Yellen. Um, so maybe she can, you know, treaded more political waters than before but still um it's a great point mike um all right guys well look as we wrap up here um uh john i'll hand it back to you just to close any way you like um but i'll, I'll toss back out there again um it is now post thanksgiving uh so we're heading into december um so we've got basically 31 days left in the year here um i know we've talked a little bit about in the past about end of year tactics like um uh, tax loss harvesting and stuff like that, but any reminder you want to give to people about things that they might want to consider doing here as, as the year is wrapping up? Yeah, some really important things that folks should be making sure they do if they're of age uh, or have inherit of age that they have required distributions they need to take from their IRA accounts. Um, uh, depending on when you were born, it's it's 70 and a half or 72. If you, if you, if you haven't already been taking them or been required to take them, it's age of 72. Um, if you've inherited an IRA, you're required to take distributions no matter no matter your age. Um, so that's all got to be done. There's some nuances there. What do you got to do in, in the current year or up, uh, you can defer to the following year? Uh, but the point being is you, you need to get those done before the deadline, which is typically the end of the year, or you, you face some pretty substantial tax penalties for not uh, distributing uh, at least the, the required amount. So we're you know, our clients are, are well advised of that by us and and I uh, can say we're largely done with those distributions for our clients well in advance of the deadlines. Um, there's always thoughtful things to be, to be thinking about in terms of tax loss harvesting, especially this year where, where uh, folks might be down on some some holdings that, that didn't do so well this year, whether stocks or bonds. Uh, those are valuable losses to harvest to offset future gains or even a little bit of income, up to $3,000 of income on your on your, your tax return. Um, and, and just, just be open, open eyed here. Um, we're in a really tricky part of the cycle, um, uh, we think, and, and, uh, it doesn't mean markets can't go higher. We're actually every, 
every day, every week in our investment committee, we're, we're keeping open minds to new positions we could uh, uh, leg into here, um, either because they're undervalued or, or showing relative strength, even though they may be overvalued. These are all things we we consistently think about, but our, but we do think that the environment still is very much one conducive to um, just being careful about downside. Um, we're very richly priced uh, in a economy that's probably going to start showing some more, you know, painful evidence of, of recession. So. All right. Well, well said, John, and everybody watching, as we say every week, you know, highly recommend that if you put into action, even just that list that John just mentioned there, uh, we recommend that unless you've got lots of experience doing it yourself, work under the guidance of a good financial professional who's got a lot of experience uh, who can you know help you make uh, the smartest decision given your personal situation there if you've got a good one great stick with them uh, if you don't though or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does and one that takes into account all of the macro trends and issues that, that andy and i talked about perhaps even john and mike and their team at new harbor themselves uh, just go to wealthion.com fill out the short form there uh, you can have uh, a free consultation with these guys. Doesn't cost you anything. Um, no commitment to work with them. It's just a public service they offer. And as we begin to get into year end here, uh, it's a really valuable time to do it, especially because you want to make sure that you're taking advantage of, of doing the right things, uh, as John just mentioned, as the year wraps up. But you also want to make sure that you are positioning yourself as best as possible getting into the start of the new year. Um, all right, guys. Well, look, thanks so much for joining me again here for yet another week. Everybody watching, um, if you enjoyed this conversation with Andy, uh, would like to have us see more great guests like him on the program, please support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And whatever happens from here, guys, um, we will be deconstructing it for folks next week. Mike, uh, next week, if we continue to see strong performance in the precious metals, Maybe we can dive deeply into that with you next week. Um, gold's above 1780, getting in spinning distance of $1,800 an ounce. Silver's back over 22. Um, this is momentum. I think a lot of folks have been looking to see for a long time. Um, didn't have time to get into it deeply in this conversation. And also, you know, don't want to put the cart before the horse. Let's see if these gains, uh, you know, persist for the next week. But if they do, we can dive deeply into that. Everybody else, see you next week. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you, Adam. We'll see you soon. Thanks a lot, Adam. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, 
as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching. 